Welcome to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Today I'm going to talk about food policy and food politics, which have been on my mind more than ever before. You'll hear from experts like Ted Nordhaus of the Breakthrough Institute, Luis Guardia of the Food Research and Action Center, and Tom Philpot, a food journalist with Mother Jones. And we'll close the podcast with some news and some predictions. Let's remember that a better food system really starts with us all. Thanks to our executive producer, Rob Para. Rob, please cue the music. With the Democratic National Convention this week and the Republican National Convention next week, I'm really so interested in learning more about how the candidates plan to address food and agriculture. Uh, So I was interested to hear how recently Vice President uh, Mike Pence talked about vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris. He told, uh, again, recently a a group of farmers and ranchers that basically she was coming for their meat, uh, their red meat. And and he came to this conclusion uh, because he dug up the presidential town hall Senator Harris uh, participated in on CNN last year, where she did talk about uh, the dietary guidelines when she was asked a question by someone from the audience. Harris uh, said at that time that she would support changing the dietary guidelines that recommend what is considered healthy. For adults, let's remember that the guidelines do not mandate what people can eat. So nobody's coming to your house to tell you what to eat. But they can change eating patterns in federal programs, such as school lunch programs. Uh, Harris said, again, at that time, that as a nation, we actually have to have a priority at the highest level of, of government around what we eat and in terms of what is healthy, because she says we have a problem in America. Uh, she also said at that time that she loves cheeseburgers, uh, but she said that there has to be a way to create incentives that will encourage eating in a healthy way, that will encourage moderation, and that we will be educated about the effects of our eating habits on the environment. And she said that we have to do a much better job of that, and the government has to do a much better job of that. CNN asked her specifically, again at that time, this was last year, if she would support changing the dietary guidelines to reduce bread meat. And she said, yes, yes, I would. Um, I wish Vice President Pence had really focused on, on you know, instead of this, this discussion around red meat and the dietary guidelines, on Senator Harris's work to fight hunger in the United States or her support of, of food and farm workers. Earlier this month, she wrote an op-ed on CNN about hazard pay, mandatory hazard pay for grocery store workers. It's no secret that the folks working in grocery stores are really on the front lines of the pandemic and every day are risking their lives to ensure that all of us are fed. Senator Harris wrote the following, while top grocery store chains rake in billions in profits during this pandemic, these frontline workers cannot choose to work from home like the corporate executives of these companies do. I hope that the federal government and can and, and, and corporate executives can really heed Senator Harris's advice and ensure that the nation's 3 million grocery store employees are kept safe and healthy. We need them. 
Um, and in a statement from the United Farm Workers uh, President, Teresa Romero, who was a guest on Food Talk recently, she said that Kamala Harris has a long history of working directly with the United Farm Workers. She led the fight, uh, President Romero said, for equal treatment and protection of America's farm workers as a U.S. senator by authoring the current federal bill providing overtime pay after eight hours a day for agricultural workers. As California's attorney general, she lobbied the governor to sign California's landmark law in 2016, providing phased-in overtime and to strengthen state rules preventing worker deaths and illnesses from extreme heat. From my perspective, Kamala Harris has the most experience of anyone in this campaign right now supporting our country's farm and food workers. Again, the folks who make sure that you and I and everyone else we know get to eat every day. And just going back to uh, Senator Harris's comments about meat last year, I'm assuming she still loves cheeseburgers and also that she continues to see the need for better food and health policy in this country. And and by the way, reducing meat consumption doesn't mean eliminating meat consumption. And the scientific consensus on meat is that folks should eat less of it uh, for better health as, as well as the health of the environment. As we've talked about before on this podcast, not all meat is created equal, and there are ways to raise animals in a way that is more humane, healthier for eaters, and that protects the environment. Uh, On September 8th, I'll be moderating a discussion with food expert and writer Michael Pollan, Paul Willis, the founder of Nyman Ranch Pork Company, and Don Sherman, the CEO of Native American Natural Foods and a member of the Lakota, Shawnee, and Delaware tribe. We'll talk about what it takes to create a resilient food system and how meat production can be part of that. And it's my hope that that Joe Biden listens to his running mate on food and farm and worker policy in this country. Our food and agriculture practices and policies are really closely linked to how we address not only health, but how we also address what, in addition to COVID-19, is one of the greatest environmental problems of our time, climate change. It worries me that because of COVID-19, it seems that like there's less action on climate change. It's been a really tough three and a half years for legislation or regulations to mitigate or adapt to climate change. And the U.S. is really lagging behind many other nations in climate change mitigation efforts, including President Trump's decision to abandon the Paris Agreement on Climate. Along these same lines, I was able to talk to conservative thinker and self-described eco-modernist Ted Norhaus from the Breakthrough Institute about how he thinks technology and agricultural intensification will be the best ways uh, to to achieve some of these solutions that are needed on climate and agriculture. Um, so you'll hear from him in a moment. I I also chatted with former farmer and current food and agriculture journalist and, and now author Tom Philpott uh, about his just-released book, Perilous Bounty. He talked about the need uh, for diversification in agriculture, better protections for food and farm workers, and how solutions won't come from technological silver bullets, but solutions that farmers are already using in fields right now. He has a lot to say, and I know you'll enjoy the conversation with him. 
And it's been a tough several months for millions of Americans who depend on SNAP benefits to feed their families. According to Luis Guardia of the Food Research and Action Center, one in five American households are experiencing food security because of COVID-19. And BIPOC communities, Black, Indigenous, people of color communities, have seen even greater levels of hunger. Strengthening SNAP benefits, not reducing them, Luis thinks is key to helping folks during this pandemic. And, and there are likely to be a lot more folks who will end up depending on SNAP and other federal assistance programs. So I, I hope you'll, you'll learn a lot from the conversation I had with him. You and the Breakthrough Institute have argued that you've already mentioned an increased globalization um, rather than more sort of local resiliency and agricultural intensification are what's needed to shield us against food food insecurity, whether it's a pandemic or not. And that agricultural intensification bit, you know, you mentioned the 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 folks who have to work at meatpacking plants and how, you know, without the proper equipment. And we've seen, you know, these hot spots where, you know, 300 workers, 500 workers at particular plants, you know, come down with COVID. Can you talk to me why you believe agricultural intensification will protect us against these things? And, you know, for our viewers and, and listeners, can you describe what you mean by agricultural intensification? Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about agriculture, what you know, what we're really talking about is producing more food on less land. Um, and if you look at, for instance, climate change um, and and the contributions from the agriculture sector to climate change, uh, land use change is just the main event, uh, and we don't talk about it nearly enough. Um, and and uh, in a lot of these conversations about sustainable ag, we draw a circle around these sustainable systems that's much too small. Um, and so we don't deal with issues like leakage um, uh, and sort of what happens when you take very productive farmland and in the name of local environmental benefits, reduce yields, um, you know, where that those yields are made up um, and, and the trade-offs are mostly not good. Um, so, so, you know, intensive and, and obviously that goes to sort of livestock production, things like that uh, as well. You said um, at the outset that we've had a hunger and health crisis in the U.S. for a long time, but COVID-19 has really punctuated it. And I think that's a good word. It, it really has sort of, you know, made... Um, made it more visible. And, and I'm hoping you can talk about that. Why have we, why has it been easy to ignore the hunger and health problem in the United States before COVID? A lot of it is the way we've, we've approached it. You know, I think uh, there's been uh, some difficulty to, uh, to accept uh, some of the, the new faces of hunger, you know, but even, even before COVID, uh, we were, um, uh, uh, at, at FRAC, uh, we were uh, thinking about our 50th anniversary, which is coming up this year, and how has hunger changed? And one of the things that we've been thinking about is uh, particularly uh, the, the new phases of hunger. So, for example, uh, we're finding a lot of food insecurity right now around, among college students. So mm -hmm. a, lot of a, lot of, a lot of college students work. And uh, they work in these jobs that are that have become more vulnerable, uh, so they, they become more more food insecure. And we're finding uh, a lot of people who uh, you know who are also kind of uh, related uh, uh, to the, uh, those uh, similarly or those other adjacent communities, uh, where where it is a a family uh, that that either they have a house they may need, they might even have a mortgage. Uh, 
they're really kind of living, uh, even before COVID, uh, things could have been a little tenuous and there was, and we were finding uh, that there are a lot of people that were like one or two paychecks away from, uh, from significant trouble. And then, uh, as, as I was saying before, then when COVID hit, unfortunately, that, that became part of their reality that they needed to deal with. Absolutely. It's interesting. We talk a lot about childhood uh, hunger, and I know that's something that FRAC works on uh, quite diligently. But we, we've, it, you know, we've forgotten that college students, as you said, you know, they seem to be part of that population that where you know it's kind of hidden hunger. We don't expect college kids to be hungry, but yet that's a huge problem across the United States. And and I know um, where you live in Washington, D.C., a lot of universities have set up pantries and that kind of thing for, for college students. What other resources do, do college students need to really get through, you know, not just their four years of college, but through this pandemic? Yeah, so, uh, you know, college students, uh, uh, they look at a lot of the options that a lot of other people who are food insecure have. So, uh, probably one of the, the biggest uh, programs, uh, it, it is the biggest uh, food is uh, the food security program that we have at our disposal is SNAP. That's a supplemental nutrition assistance program. Uh, it's run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Uh, it used to be referred to as the food stamp program. And uh, but what um, that that is really kind of the country's first line of defense against mm-hmm. hunger. And one of the things that we've been advocating for quite a bit uh, since the onset of, of the pandemic have been for increases in the uh, in the amounts available to SNAP. So uh, SNAP is, is, a, is a great tool. It is uh, uh, it, it, it has the virtues of riding the regular rails of commerce. So uh, people can use uh, their SNAP benefits at local grocery stores. Uh, it, it comes in a, in a secure in a secure uh, card that, that they can use as well. There's also, um, uh, there's also the benefit that it, it helps the local economies grow. So when people, uh, there are studies uh, that USC, USDA is even commissioned on this, where for every $1 SNAP benefits, $1.50 to $1.80, so that's a 50 to 80 percent return on investment goes right back into the economy. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're all, you know, everybody's looking at, uh, at the economy. If you were looking at the sub market, you know, 58 percent return. That's, that, that's, that's not bad. Right. So and, but, uh, but it has the virtue of feeding, of feeding the hungry as well. And the other thing that we've noticed is that uh, with um, uh, with these uh uh, benefits that the SNAP program has. Some of these benefits come back into the economy very quickly, quickly because they happen very locally. Right. So when, when we talk about uh, strengthening some of our food systems, we talk about strengthening our, our, our local, our local, um, our local uh, merchants, um, and and helping uh, food insecure people like college students. SNAP is the way. Uh, SNAP is the way to go. And right now, the Congress has a great opportunity. We're, we're disappointed that they left. Washington and still didn't close this deal, but we're still hopeful that if they're dealing with some of these other issues that the congressional leadership wants them to deal with, that they can also realize that there are millions of people who need more help. We are in uh, we are in the depths of of an economic downturn like we haven't seen in generations, and we're seeing food insecurity at levels we haven't seen in generations. So we're 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 asking for roughly three, basically three things. Uh, we're asking for an increase in 15% in the maximum SNAP benefit. 
that is in line with what the government provided uh, to folks back in the 2008-2009 um, uh, Great Recession, uh, or as part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, or the ARA Act. So very much in line with, with that level of increase. The second thing we're asking for is for an increase in the minimum. So a lot of these newer people kind of coming in to uh, to the food stamp program that aren't getting the maximum benefit, they really need a, a, a step up on the minimum. So we're asking the minimum to go from $16 to $30. And the third thing we're asking for that also affects uh, students and other people with uh, uh, with uh, kind of more unpredictable or more insecure work schedules is the relief of certain uh, onerous rules that have been preventing people from uh, from accessing uh, the program. And, right. and also when people, you mentioned kids before, when people can't access the program, uh, uh, qualification for SNAP usually makes a family and their kids automatically available for qualification for uh, for school so if, for, with some of these rules some of these rules are not just preventing people from getting snap but we also believe that they're preventing about 1 million children from getting through free or reduced price meals which is uh, which again is it's, it's not, this is not the time to be there I think CRISPR is you know potentially an interesting tool but um, it's foolish to put a whole lot of stock into that when there's stuff that we know works. Right. It's sort right. of like, um, you know, there's a, you know, there's um, these next generation nuclear power plants that might be able in at some point to do something that's not as dirty as regular nuclear power sure. and have as much waste and stuff like that. And it requires huge amounts of investment and huge amounts of, of government subsidies. Um, but we know that you know basically scaling up wind and solar um, will get us there uh, a lot faster and and less expensively, yeah, and exactly. less expensively. And I think that you know the stuff I talk about in the book, just sort of crop diversification um, and things like that, um, we know have dramatic impacts on maintaining productivity while cutting pesticide use, while saving soil, saving water, et cetera. And um, and so I think those are these. CRISPR and some GMOs are these shiny objects off in the distance that their promises are always, you know, are always right. about to see something spectacular happen um, that never arrives. Whereas these other things are, um, are right here before us and we can do right now. I'm going to end today with some news and, and some predictions. Um, Food Tank has been uh, working as part of the Refresh Working Group to put together a policy platform on the the benefits and the costs of, of technology and agriculture in the United States. That uh, policy platform will be released pre-election, so please stay tuned on foodtank.com. We're really excited to get it out in the world. It'll address some uh, things around, uh, obviously, COVID-19, food loss and food waste, uh, and, and other issues that we think are important around food and technology. Um, one question that I keep getting from folks over and over is uh, that if I think the online delivery services for food and groceries will continue to expand, uh, the answer for me is an obvious yes. Uh, 
even when this pandemic ends or we have a, a, an effective vaccine, I think it will take a while for folks to feel comfortable shopping regularly in stores again. So it's likely that we'll see more Instacart and Amazon-like uh, operations and maybe some more local and smaller companies who are entering the space. What really worries me is not the proliferation or the expansion of these companies, but it's really around how they treat their shoppers and their drivers. I'd like to see those folks have the ability to organize and collectively bargain for better working conditions, including PPE, as well as hazard pay. In the meantime, though, if you are able, please tip these folks generously. Like food and farm workers, they are making sure that many of us stay safe and, and healthy and can eat during the pandemic. Thanks to you all for listening, and I'll look forward to hearing your suggestions for future guests, what you think are the most pressing issues around food and farm policies, and what you want from your local, state, and national legislators. If you want to ask a question on the show, please send an audio file to danielle at foodtank.com and check out foodtank.com for more stories and information, including our newsletter this week on ways to reduce uh, plastic use in all of our lives. Thank you again, and please stay well. This is Rob Perra, Food Talk's executive producer. Let Danny and I know what you think of the new podcast format. Send us an email at danielle at foodtank.com. Please feel free to suggest future guests and anything you think we can improve. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next time.